The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, find ourselves this week in the midst of really a sort of a three-part series in which we've stepped outside of the a letter to First Timothy that we've been working our way through and uh, have chosen to focus on a few themes that are important in the life of our church at the moment. We uh, have talked about the importance of mission and community. Pastor Britt taught us on that last week as we launched city groups. We spend this morning look at the issue of, of serving, what it looks like to serve and the importance of being a servant and then Next Sunday, we finish out this three-part series with looking at what does it look like to take the gospel to the nations and the importance of that peace in the life of our church. And all of these are strategic in some sense. They're strategic as in the sense that they relate to pieces and parts of church life that are shifting or moving or that we're introducing. And so we want to make sure that you understand biblically where we're coming from and what's on the hearts and minds of your leadership at the moment. As we launch things, you see advertisements, you see newsletters, you hear us talking about things we want you to be involved in, but we want you to understand why we want you to be involved with them. It's not just that we want you to be active and to do things. It's because we see a call in the Word of God for us as a church to do certain things. And so we're trying to use these Sundays to sort of build the foundation for that to sort of build out the theology of it so that you understand it. And then we, find our, or we will find ourselves back in 1 Timothy in just a couple of weeks, uh, back to uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. But this morning our text is Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 20 and we'll read through verse 28. As Matthew records. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she said, she said to him, or she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in the kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and in my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the word of the Lord for us today. I don't know what your idea of the ideal vacation is, but maybe get that picture in your mind for for just a moment. What would be the ideal vacation for you? 
What would that look like? If you had unlimited resources, you could go anywhere you want, money wasn't an issue, time wasn't an issue, you could do whatever you want, go wherever you want, enjoy whatever you want, what would that look like for you? I can imagine probably across the room you're thinking of things that would be glorious and enjoyable. And probably there's different things in all of your minds right now. I'm just curious, for any of you, would that involve a cruise of some sort? No? Some of you nod your head, yes. Most of you, are. is it a no? Give me one of these or one of those. Cruise, yes. Cruise, no. Okay, there's a good mixture out there. Do you know one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing category in the leisure travel market right now is cruising, taking a cruise? In 2018, over 27.2 million people worldwide took a cruise vacation. Took a cruise vacation. In fact, statistics from Royal Caribbean Cruise Line, and it's not the largest, Carnival really is the largest with the holdings as far as the largest number of ships and the number of passengers, but Royal Caribbean is a close second, I believe. But just according to Royal Caribbean statistics, they booked last year, 2018, 6.1 million passengers who spent roughly $9.5 billion on cruising. Now let's take a quick survey. How many of you have been on a cruise before? I'm going to raise my hand because I've been on a cruise before. Okay, so you at least understand the concept that I'm talking about. I've been on a cruise. We, my wife and I have been on two. It was one of the first vacations we went on as a, as a couple on our first anniversary. We took a little short three-day cruise out of uh, Florida down to the Bahamas. And then uh, the year after my father-in-law passed away, we, we took my mother-in-law and went on another cruise down in the Bahamas as well. So we've done twice. And <clears throat> I have to tell you, I enjoy going on a cruise. My wife, not so much. But I enjoy going on a cruise. And I'll be real transparent about it, what I enjoy about a cruise. What makes that a great vacation is that I don't have to do anything. I don't have to answer a phone. I don't have to reply to an email. I don't have to decide what I'm going to eat for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I don't have to grocery shop. I don't have to cook it, and I don't have to clean up. When I get up in the morning, I don't have to make a bed. I just go do whatever I want to do. And whatever I want to do, there's somebody there to make that happen for me. What makes a cruise wonderful, at least to me, is that I get to be served on every front. I don't have to do a thing. I do nothing. I mean, nothing. I, except what I want to do. I just get up and think, well, what do I want to do next? And whatever it is I want to do next, there's somebody there that will make it happen for me. They'll even, like, fold my towels up in the shape of animals and drop it on the bed just to make me smile when I come back. The heart of that whole vacation concept is that, that very thing. Just, you just get on the ship and you go for a ride and you don't have to do anything. You are just fully served the whole way. Is that right? Those of you who have been on a cruise, is that your experience? In fact, if you go for more than just a couple of days, it's rather difficult to sort of readjust when you get back. You, you get off that ship thinking, man, can I take those folks with me somehow? It'd be pretty great to live every day like this being served. Let's face it, we love to be served. We love to have people serve us. Given, I guarantee you, in some shape, form, or fashion, the, the dream vacation that you dreamed of probably involved somewhere 
people taking care of the needs of your life that you don't want to take care of for yourself. I imagine when I said, imagine for, you, for me your dream vacation, none of you said, well, my dream vacation is grocery shopping and cooking and doing dishes and making beds and doing laundry, right? Did anybody have that as their dream vacation? No, they didn't, right? Your dream vacation, wherever it happened to be, whatever it happened to involve, it, I guarantee you in some fashion it involved somebody doing all those things for you. Somebody serving you. You can't help it and I can't help it. We're sort of in, ingrained into a, a culture where that it, the idea of being served is elevated. And we like it. We like it. In such a culture, it is difficult for us to understand a passage like this. It's quite difficult for us to understand really a foundational truth to biblical Christianity that's so crystal clear in this passage. That truly, we don't exist in this world to be served, but to serve. God has made us not to be consumers, but to be givers. Not to be receivers, but to be the ones who give. But that's a hard concept for us, because we so like to be served. And we so like to receive. Well, we're not alone. The disciples who walked most closely with Jesus were in the same situation. They had the same temptations and they had the same challenges in their heart and in their lives and in their minds. They too liked to be served. They too struggled with selfish ambition. They too wanted to had to every day sort of deal with this battle inside, this drive inside them that wants to do whatever it takes to get to the top, to rise above the crowd. And it comes out throughout their ministry with Jesus. I don't know that it comes out anywhere more clearly than it does in the context of this encounter that we have here in Matthew's Gospel and Matthew chapter 20. Now, we haven't been studying Matthew's gospel, so I need to give you a little context. Just before this passage, something very important has happened. Jesus has pulled his disciples aside, and he has told them something now for the third time. And here's what he told them. If you just back up in your Bible to verse 17, it says, As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. It's a very serious message. Jesus knows that he's setting his face toward Jerusalem, and it's the last time he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen when he gets there. He's going to be, this whole series of dominoes is going to start to fall, beginning with his arrest and his trials, and his crucifixion, his bloody death on a cross for the sins of the world, his burial, his resurrection. He hasn't left his disciples in the dark about this. He specifically tells them, now for the third time, exactly what is going to take place. Now, I like to think of the disciples as super spiritual men. But it's clear to me from this they're pretty much just like us in a lot of ways. You would think after hearing that message, they would be disturbed. You would think that they would be upset. You would think that they'd be shaken to the core, that their Savior, their Lord, their Master is saying to them, I'm about to be unjustly killed. You'd think they'd be concerned about that. 
but they clearly do not get it. They truly don't have any concept of what is about to go down. What they do seem to get is that in some way Jesus is going to inaugurate his kingdom because he had said something to them back in chapter 19 that I believe is still sort of ringing in their ears. It sort of captured their attention and everything that he said after that sort of just flew over their heads. Back in chapter 19, they had had an encounter with a rich young ruler. Do you remember that story? Who had come to Jesus. What do I have to do to be your disciple? This rich man was in love with his wealth and he, at, at, at heart, was not willing to lay down his love for his money and submit his life to Christ. And at the end of that encounter, Jesus says something to his disciples. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's a mysterious saying, but the disciples got it. They got it. They got it that Jesus was saying, my kingdom is not built off of wealth and privilege. And Peter is flabbergasted. And he asks Jesus a very human question after Jesus says that. Verse 27 of chapter 19, Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What do you mean, Jesus, rich people can't get into the kingdom? We've left everything. What's in this for us? What's in it for us? What are we going to get out of this thing? We've given up everything and followed you. What's the payoff if it's not to have wealth? What's in it for us? To which Jesus responds in verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Ah, okay. Okay. To sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes on to say things like, brothers or sisters, father or mother or children, people who've left all those things for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I don't think they heard any of that part. I think their minds sort of locked in when Jesus said, okay, what's in it for you? You're gonna sit on the 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes. And it's against that backdrop that this event begins to play out. What's in it for us, Jesus? Well, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. That's what's in it for you. You're going to sit on 12 thrones. Now, Jesus had a lot more to say than that. That was, in fact, the least important thing that he said in his response, but it was what they zoned in on. And it seems pretty clear that since he said that, they're traveling, they're making their way to Jerusalem, they're walking, and they're thinking this thing through. Okay, all right, we're going to, we're going to rule. We're going to rule. We're going to sit on thrones. That's pretty good stuff. We're in for that. But that wasn't enough for James and John. You see, it wasn't enough for them that they were going to sit on 12 thrones. They had higher ambitions. But their ambitions were high enough and they were suspicious enough of their own motives that they don't do a direct question to Jesus. They put their mom up to it. 
This is a tactic every kid knows, right? I mean, every kid growing up knows when you want something that you don't think you're going to get or that you're, you know, a little squirrely on whether it's good or bad or not or whether there's some question about it, you just put mom or dad up to it. Mom, preferably, right? So somehow James and John talked their mom into going up and engaging Jesus and asking for what it is that they really want. And so we're told the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons. Now this is James and John's mother. Her name is Salome. She is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We find that out later as we put the, the gospel narratives together. So it's so, so in, a, in a sense, this is Jesus' aunt, or aunt, depending on how you like to say it. In the south where I'm from, we say aunt. So James and John say, Mom, how about go ask Jesus this question for us? Trying to sort of leverage the family connection here, they send their mom. She comes up to Jesus and she kneels before him. She kneels before him in this sort of a position of honor and a position of respect and sort of a position of worship toward Christ. It's sort of a worshipful act before him. But you and I know, because we know the whole story, that it wasn't genuine worship, was it? It wasn't genuine respect. It was, in fact, a purely selfish act. She wants something. She wants something. The worship is just sort of all part of an attempt at manipulation. And we look at this and we're like, come on, Salome. Seriously? You're going to kneel before Jesus and offer fake worship, which, which really isn't worship. You're not worshiping him because of his value and his worth because you want to glorify him. You're kneeling before him in worship because you really want to get something out of him. Now, we're hard on her, but we would never, we're not the sorts of people who would ever do something like that, would we? Never in a million years would we ever come before the Lord of the universe and bow before him and worship and offer him worship out of some motive other than pure devotion and love for him, would we? We would never approach the Lord in worship with a secret motive in our heart to get something out of him. But Salome did. That's exactly what she did. Now, there's a previous question here. In Mark chapter 10, Mark records this encounter, and he gives us a piece of it that that Matthew doesn't give us. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Mark 10, verse 35, you see the previous question. James and John, the sons of David Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, this is another tactic, right? When you don't want to get specific, as again, when you're a kid, you get this, right? Mom, how much do you love me? Why are you asking me how much you love me? You want something, right? Well, that's what they're doing. Lord, they don't want to come right out and ask for what they specifically want. Just, we want you, Jesus, you love us. Just do, would you, won't you just do something nice for us? It was a setup question. It was asking for a blank check. They knew what they wanted. They were in on the question, and Jesus answers toward them. So what do they ask for? Lord, when you come into your kingdom, here's what we want. We want to sit on your right and on your left. We want to sit on the right and the left. 
When you come into your kingdom and you inaugurate your kingdom, we want to be in the two highest positions in the kingdom apart from you. Now, granted, they're not audacious enough to ask for the throne itself, right? They at least, you know, believe Jesus belongs in first place. They just believe that they deserve second and third. When you think about the request, it's really an audacious request, isn't it? I mean, it's just oozing with arrogance and selfishness. I mean, think of how arrogant the question is. They've thought about this. They've been thinking about it all the way there. Twelve thrones, we're going to rule. Hey, hey, John. Yeah, James. I think, we're, I think we're a little bit better than the rest of these guys here. These other, these other ten dudes. You know, there's twelve of us, but there's only one right and one left. And I'm looking around at these other guys, and I think, I think those chairs belong to us. Why don't we go ask Jesus for them? I mean, they're in essence saying, of all the great people who have ever lived, of all the great people who have ever lived and served the Lord, they see themselves as the highest value of them all. They deserve second and third place only to Jesus in all of human history. That's pretty arrogant, isn't it? To look at yourself in the mirror and say, man, Jesus, when it comes to your kingdom, uh, from all of human history, I'm pretty sure that next to you, I'm number two. And my brother, he's number three. They looked themselves in the mirror and thought that they measured up. It's an incredibly arrogant request. It's also incredibly selfish, isn't it? I mean, they're concerned for nobody else. They're only concerned for themselves. In fact, what they're actually trying to do is they're attempting to get one up on everybody else. I mean, forget all that hogwash that Jesus has been talking about, treating others as you would have them treat you, dying to yourself, denying yourself, taking up a cross and following after him. Forget all that nonsense. We want chair number two and chair number three. That's what we want. I mean, they felt entitled. They felt entitled to it. After all, it seemed like a reasonable request to them. They were in Jesus' inner circle when Jesus wanted to pull away and do something particular or unique from the other disciples. He would always pull with him Peter, James, and John. He would always pull those three. So they were close to Jesus. They were in his inner circle. At least they were in that inner circle of three Whenever something special was going on, Jesus took them and left the others behind. Surely they deserve the two most prominent seats. Forget about that Peter guy. You snooze, you lose, Peter. We got dibs. There's only one right and one left. You're going to have to find another chair. We called the front seat. It's an incredibly arrogant response. An incredibly selfish request, an incredibly entitled attitude that they bring to the Lord. And they get an immediate response from him. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking for. You're, you're totally deluded in your thinking. You haven't even a clue what it is that you're asking. And I'm going to tell you, one of the things that most amazes me as I walk through this narrative is the patience of Jesus patience of Jesus as he tries to walk these selfish, arrogant, entitled disciples who've got their whole value system flipped upside down, even though he has been pouring into them and teaching them time and time again, he patiently tries to walk them back 
to what it looks like to live kingdom values in spite of the fact that they're clueless still. In spite of all that I've taught you about my kingdom, you don't get it. You're still driven by the world's values. You still don't understand the nature of my kingdom. And so he patiently asked them, okay, you think you deserve spot number two and spot number three. And so he asked them a question, a simple question, a diagnostic question that should have snapped them to reality. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup I'm, I'm to drink? Okay, you think you deserve spot number two and spot number three. You, you think you deserve to be right up there with me. Are you able to drink my cup? What's the cup he's talking about? Well, it's the same cup he would talk about in Gethsemane not too long after this in Matthew chapter 26. You may remember in verse 39 when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest, he's praying, pouring his heart out before the Father. And Matthew records this, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is this cup? It's the cup of God's divine wrath. It's the cup of suffering and death, sacrificial death for the sins of humanity. It's the cross and everything that's involved with going to the cross. It, it's the physical brutality of all that surrounds the cross. It's the emotional and spiritual devastation that comes upon the Lord. It's the, the loneliness, the abandonment, the separation from the Father. The full weight of the Father's wrath poured out on the Son for your sin and my sin and the sins of all humanity. That's the cup he's about to drink. And he says to them, are you able to drink that cup? Now you would think that somebody in their right mind would snap to and say, oh, wait a minute, I get it, I get it. We're nowhere near you. But not James and John. They say, yeah, yeah, we're able. We got it. We could do it. It just shows how clueless they are about what is about to take place how clueless they are in spite of the fact that Jesus has specifically told them on three occasions what's about to happen, they still do not get it. Only he could drink the cup. Only the perfect spotless lamb of God could take away the sins of the world. But they're not like Peter. Do you remember Peter? Jesus says, Peter, tonight you're going to fall away from me. You're going to deny me three times. And what does Peter say to Jesus? Oh, no, Jesus, no way. Everybody else may fall away. All these, other, all these other bums around here, they might fall away, but not me. Not me. I'll never fall away from you. But we know what happened. We know what happened, don't we? He did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He fell away. He denied Christ three times. And just like Peter, James, and John foolishly don't know how to measure their own hearts, they're blind to their own weakness, and they've severely overestimated their own spirituality and their place in the kingdom. But it wouldn't be very long before they learned the nature of their true allegiance. In Matthew 26, verse 56, we see not too long after this, Matthew records this, all this has taken place that the scripture and the prophets might be fulfilled. And then... All the disciples, you think that includes James and John? What did they do? They left them and they ran away. 
Oh yeah, Jesus, we can take your cup. We'll drink your cup. We got this. The next thing you know, when the heat comes on, they're running and hightailing it out of there. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew they couldn't drink his cup. He knew that just when the little persecution came that they would run away. He was just trying to help them see it. But they're so blind by their own selfish ambition and their overinflated ego, their overinflated spiritual ego, that they totally miss it. But Jesus does say to them, you will drink my cup. You will drink my cup. That's a little confusing. I thought, they can't drink the cup, so how is it that they're going to drink the cup? It's an interesting play on words. What Jesus is communicating to them is this. He's communicating to them, you can't drink the full cup that I'm about to drink. But he's saying to them, you will drink a portion of my cup. You will take a sip of my cup. That is to say, you will taste a little bit of what I'm about to endure but he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking of, of, of what's going to happen in the future. In spite of their current ignorance, one day they are going to get it. And they do. James becomes the first martyr. Acts chapter 12, we're told, about, the time Herod came, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. John is later persecuted severely and exiled to the island of Patmos where he lives to an old age and dies in exile. They, they would taste a little bit of his cup, but they couldn't take the full measure of it. Not even close. Jesus says, look, look guys, positions of authority in my kingdom are sovereignly prepared. They're, they're, not, they're not achieved the way the world achieves power and position. You don't get position in my kingdom by acquiring things and by accumulating wealth and power. You don't get to positions of power in my kingdom by climbing the ladder and stepping on other people. You don't get to those positions by achievement. No. Those positions that you've asked for are sovereignly prepared by the Father. You don't get them that way. And Matthew tells us, the other ten heard it. Well, that had to be interesting, right? Clearly, they're close enough to where they hear what's going on. And they're indignant at the two, two brothers. The other ten disciples are clearly, they're agitated, they're irritated. Now, you might be tempted to think that these guys are super spiritual as well, right? You would think that they're going to be really irritated at James and John. How could you, how could you idiots ask for something so stupid? They're not agitated about that. What they're agitated at is that James and John beat them to the punch. They're agitated that James and John think they deserve it more than them. They felt just as entitled to the seat number two and seat number three. They all shared the same ambitions. And we know that because this isn't the first time that this conversation has come up. And frankly, it isn't the last time this conversation is going to come up. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 33 and 34, Mark records for us a time when the whole, the whole gaggle of them were walking down to Capernaum. And here's what Mark records. As they came to Capernaum, and when, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? That had to be like a, a crickets moment. 
But they kept silent. Why didn't they say anything? For on the way, they had argued with one another about what? Who is the greatest? That had to be one of those, like, moments, right? You're having this conversation off on the side, on the road, arguing with each other about who's the greatest, and Jesus asked you, what was it you guys were talking about? Crickets, right? But Jesus knew what they were talking about. And unbelievably, a little later, when they're gathered around the table for the Lord's Supper, for the Last Supper, Luke records for us this, that even at the table, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I mean, these guys are are insufferable. I mean, every time you turn around, they're arguing with each other about who should be number one. In spite of all that they saw and heard, selfish ambition and the exaltation of self was a constant temptation for these men. It's hard for us to understand because such things are never temptations for us. We have to use our, our sanctified imagination to try and put ourselves in their place to even imagine what that must be like. But Jesus understands the danger of such a mindset. And so he pulls all these guys together and he, and he lays out for them a life lesson. He knows that their value system has to be reoriented. He's about to die and these are going to be the men who are going to lead his church. And if they don't get this flipped upside right, they're never going to survive. So he calls them together and he gives them a life lesson. And he says this, look men, the world around us works this way. Worldly greatness is marked by selfish ambition and power and wealth and position and authority. Worldly rulers all around us, that's what drives them. They're driven by power and authority and wealth and selfish ambition. And again, it's not like that with rulers in our day, so we don't understand such things, right? We don't understand what it would be like to ever have a president or some prime minister who's driven by selfish ambition, power, position, or wealth, right? who thinks those are the things that make a person great. But at least in Jesus' day, that's what worldly rulers thought, and that's how they acted and behaved. But Jesus says, look, that's how the world around us operates, but that is not how godly people operate. It is not so for you. Greatness in my kingdom has nothing to do with selfish ambition. It has nothing to do with what chair you sit in. It has nothing to do with power and wielding authority over people and holding a position. It really has nothing even to do with achievement or wealth. It has to do with selfless service. Greatness in the kingdom of God is marked by selfless service. Guys, you want to be great? You keep arguing about who's the greatest. You want to be great? You want to be in the top position in the kingdom? Here's what you need to do. Become a servant. You want to achieve something in my kingdom? Be a servant. In one sentence, he turns the world's value system upside down on its head. Greatness in the kingdom has nothing to do with where your seat is. It has everything to do with how you've served. How you've served. Commentator by the name of Linsky said this, great men are not sitting on top of lesser men. 
but bearing lesser men on their backs. In God's system, the great ones are the ones that serve. The ones who serve. The word servant here is diakonos. It, it's just a person who does menial labor. It's the lowest level of hired help, if you will. Marked by humble, selfless serving of others. And it is the baseline call in following Christ. First Peter chapter 4, Peter speaks to this. He says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. As each one has received a gift, exalt yourself and tell everybody how wonderful you are at exercising your gift. No. Use your gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. God's been gracious. He's gifted you. You know how you ought to use that gift? Use it to serve somebody else rather than to exalt yourself. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Paul writes. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Serve one another. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. The baseline call in following Christ is a call to die to ourself and uh, to, to take up the position of humble servant. It's to die to our own selfish ambition and our own desire to achieve and to acquire and to accumulate and to get to the top and to hold power and authority and position. It's to be perfectly contented with the position of menial servant. Anonymous servant. This past week we remembered September 11th, 2001 attacks in our nation. I'm sure at some point along the way this week when that day came, you saw articles and stories, maybe you saw video clips, maybe I hope you at some point stopped and at least thought about it and remembered those who gave their lives on that day. One of the stories that sort of caught my attention that I was reminded of this week and thinking it back was the story of an Air Force pilot who was a, a lieutenant on 9-11-2001, the first female pilot, fighter pilot with the 121st Fighter Squadron. At the time, she was Lieutenant uh, Heather Penny. I don't know if you know her story or not, but it's a, it's a fascinating story as you sort of walk through the, the events of that day and how things were unfolding. People had no sense for fully what was going on in the moment. It was sort of a fog, and nobody had anticipated that sort of attack, and we as a nation were certainly not prepared for that sort of attack. And so as it was unfolding, there was this sort of fog of war that was going on, and at the time, uh, Lieutenant uh, Penny was with the 121st Fighter Squadron. She was stationed at, at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. She was in a planning meeting when the first airplane or aircraft hit the first tower, And in the middle of that meeting, someone knocked on the door and 
told them what had happened, where, that a plane had just struck the World Trade Center. Like everybody who hears that, they, they immediately begin to think, well, how can that happen? It had to be some sort of uh, a pilot who just got confused in their private plane and hit the building. But it wasn't long, just minutes later, that they learned about a second plane, and they knew at that point this was no accident. Not long after that, a third plane hit the Pentagon, and the word came that there were other planes in the air that potentially could be hijacked as well, heading to other targets, and they needed to get their aircraft off the ground and into the air. There was one problem for Lieutenant Penny and her commanding officer. Their aircraft were not armed with any sort of weaponry that could take down an aircraft. And it would have taken over an hour to get them fully armed. So her commanding officer says to her, her nickname was Lucky. Lucky, you're with me. The two pilots jumped into their F-16s and they launched out and they knew that they had a mission. United Flight 93 was still in the air and it was hijacked and it was headed for another target with plenty of people on board. And they knew that their mission was to stop that aircraft before it got to its target. It's a little challenging when you're flying an F-16 and you don't have any weaponry. Well, Lieutenant uh, Penny knew what that meant. It meant that she and her commanding officer were going to have to ram the aircraft physically. They had come up with their own sort of a plan as they got up in the air. Uh, he was going to take the cockpit and she was going to aim for the tail. But she knew what it was. She knew that this was a kamikaze mission. Before they could uh, locate the aircraft and execute that mission, you know the story of flight 93, some passengers on board rushed the cockpit and the plane came down. But what was interesting is the heart of this pilot who was willing to give her own life to protect the lives of others. She was talking about this at a later date in an interview. She didn't speak about this for about 10 years. But she gave a, a, a speech at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies when she was 43 years old. And in the midst of that, she said this, and it's what caught my attention when they were asking her about how she could go through with that mission, knowing what it meant. And she said this, quote, We all have a greater purpose than our own personal interests. And when we seek that purpose, we can serve our community and our family and our nation in so many ways. We all have a greater purpose than our own personal interests. That was something that Peter and John, not Peter, but James and John had completely lost sight of. The only thing they were concerned about was their own personal interests. James Irwin an astronaut was speaking at the uh, National Religious Broadcasters uh, convention a few years back. He was an astronaut who was part of a crew that had made the first successful moonwalk. He spoke on the thrill of the ride and what it was like to see the Earth rise 
from this, from outer space. As he was returning home, flying back, he realized that many people would probably consider him a, a superstar for what he had accomplished. Humbled by the awesome goodness of God and giving him the opportunity to do this, he said this. He said, as I was returning to earth, I realized that I was a servant, not a celebrity. So I'm here as God's servant on planet earth to share what I've experienced that others might know the glory of God. There's something about that pithy phrase that he uses that needs to get embedded in all of our heads. I was a servant, not a celebrity. The highest goal of any believer is to be a servant, not a celebrity. We can't buy in to the celebrity culture around us that says that being a celebrity is the highest honor a human can achieve. That's the world system. In Christ's economy, a servant is the highest honor that any of us can achieve. He said, you want to you be great, be a servant. You want first place? Jesus said, be a slave. Be a slave. He changes the term from servant to slave. If it wasn't clear enough when I said be a servant, a low-level, menial servant, let me take it a step further. If you really want to be great in my kingdom, assume the position of slave. A slave has, no, has, the, has absolutely no rights whatsoever, at least in their culture. They're the personal property of somebody else, somebody who could do with them whatever they wanted to do. They could be bought and sold. They had no ambitions. They had no expectations of their own glory. They existed solely to serve their master. And Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, assume that position. They don't know it, but he's about to pay for them with his own blood. He's about to pay for them. Jesus says, do I need to even give you a further example? Look to me if you're confused about these things. Even I, the Son of Man, did not come to be what? Served. But to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, if I could sum up my entire mission, it's two verbs, serve and give, serve and give. I, the sovereign God of the universe, divinity in human flesh, who could do anything that he wanted, who could demand anything that he wanted, who had just left the worship of celestial angels and came, said, I've come to do two things, to serve and to give. Serve and to give. If you want to be great, learn to serve. If you want to be great, be a giver. At that same Lord's table, it was going to happen not too long after this conversation when they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest, Jesus steps up from the table. It's recorded in Luke chapter 13. We don't have time to walk through it today, but you remember the scene. He steps up from the table. He takes off his tunic and he stands in front of these men who are arguing about who is the greatest. And he kneels down before them. He prepares a basin full of water and he takes a towel and he begins to wash their filthy feet they clearly weren't getting it when he was saying it so he shows them the God of the universe washing the filthy feet 
of those who are arguing about who's the greatest. That was greatness on display. That was greatness on display. The Son of God, the servant, who didn't come to be served but to serve, who didn't come to be a consumer but who came to give his own life, to shed his own blood, to lay down everything that we might have eternal life. It's an amazing picture. And as aghast as we are at the apostles James and John who would ask such questions and demand such status, the roots of that kind of ambition and that kind of pride and that kind of entitlement and that kind of selfishness, it roots down in your heart and mind just the same. Maybe we wouldn't be so audacious as to ask for it like they did, but it's there. We want to be recognized. We want to be noticed. We want to rise. We want to be given authority and position. We do come before the Lord and worship Him with ulterior motives, believing that if we do what He wants, then He's going to give us what we want. Trying to manipulate out of the Lord of the universe. Trying to bend Him to actually do our will. Our time is up. I have a couple questions for you. Maybe you can think about these as we wrap this up. In what ways do you desire to be served rather than to serve? In what parts of your life, when it really comes down to your heart and motive, do you really just want to be served and not to serve? You want other people to serve you. In what ways do you love consuming rather than giving? How does that manifest in your life, the desire to be a consumer rather than a giver? Does that show up in your home as you navigate with your families? Does that show up in your workplace as you navigate with your coworkers? Does that show up in church life when you just come as a consumer but no desire to give? Where do you find your greatest joy? In serving or being served? In giving or consuming? What would it look like for you? What would it look like for you to live with open hands to give and an open heart to serve? What would it look like for you to take the position of a servant, of a slave, and to say, Lord, I'm content with what I have. I don't need to receive another thing. I just want to be a giver. I don't want other people and demand other people serve me. I want to be finding joy in serving somebody else. Probably every area of your life, there are opportunities for you to give and to serve. I'm sure that there are ways in, in our families, each of us could be a better giver and a better servant. I'm sure as we navigate life with other people, we find these things creeping up in our lives and there are better ways that we can give and to serve. I know in the life of the church here, there are plenty of opportunities to give and to serve. If you're here in the body of Christ at Grace on the Ashes and you've assumed the position primarily of consumer, maybe you should look to the Lord and think about these words of his and ask the question, why is it that I'm not serving somewhere? Why is it that I'm not serving somewhere? 
We've got an AV ministry. We've got a media ministry. We've got a hospitality ministry that needs people to serve. We have sick and homebound folks that need people to come visit them. We have widows who have needs in their life that somebody needs to serve. We have a fellowship team that needs servants. We have a building and grounds team that needs servants. There's a thousand ways you could serve right here, the body of Christ. You could serve other people by serving in the body here. What's keeping you from doing it? Let's pray together about that. Lord Jesus, way more than we'd like to admit, the attitude of James and John roots down into our own hearts far more often than we would ever want anybody in this room to know. We really want to be served and not to serve. Far more than we would like anybody else in this room to ever know. We really want to be consumers and not givers. And we even deceive ourselves like James and John, and John into believing that somehow, somehow we can advance in your kingdom with those kind of attitudes. Maybe some have even come in here this morning to worship you with ulterior motives just to get something out of you, Lord. Because they think by just being here and going through the motions, somehow they'll bend you to their will. Lord, show us the roots of these sins in our hearts and dig them out. Don't allow us to be blinded like these men were to our own selfishness and ego and arrogance and entitlement. Teach us what it means, Lord, to be content to serve and to give. Open our hearts to serve. Open our hands to give. And give us joy and contentment in that that we might be more like you. We pray these things in Christ's name.